that is one of the, I think, clearest, most beautiful gospel songs. I love singing that. And I think we need to come to that place of grasping that Jesus truly is. He is all we really have. And he's more than we need. And uh, so as we sing that together, we're, we're making a bold declaration of where our hope rests, where life comes from. That's important because I think it's really easy for all of us, especially, especially in the times we live in, to get caught up in sort of the, the surface, the, the way things look. Um, and there was a, a young pastor, and he talked about his very first building project in Indiana. And he, you know, they had the team together to talk about the building and what they should do with it. And they had an architect. The architect's name was Frank Shute. And, and um, at one of the meetings, this young pastor, he, he, he says he got a good lesson about architecture, but he also got a good lesson about theology from this guy. Because as they were talking it through, uh, the young pastor just kind of goes, hey, why do we need such a high ceiling in the, in the worship center? Like, why don't we just instead, we'll just build, you know, a box, an auditorium, flat roof right there. And then on the front, we'll, we'll just put this church facade in the, in, the, in the front of the building. So when you're driving by, it looks, you know, big, tall, and huge. But we don't have to have the whole thing. Just put the facade there. And then we got the, you know, the small, regular box building behind it. And uh, this, this architect, um, he said, in a, in a very quiet voice, he said this, Pastor... The building you construct reflects what a church is and what a church does. You don't use facades on churches to fool people. That's for carnival sideshows. The outside and the inside must agree. And, and that's what Paul is doing here as we continue through 1 Corinthians in chapter 14. Because the church at Corinth in the first century, they got caught up in many things about how things look on the outside. They had all kinds of false criteria for true spirituality. In the beginning of the book, we saw they were just talking through together how, hey, I follow this leader. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. And some were so condescending, they were saying, well, I'm of Christ. You know, you can kind of see the arrogance, just who you follow, who you listen to. Um, very similar to today, right? We got, you know, I listen to this teacher or that teacher. I'm, I'm of, of uh, you know, this podcast or whatever it would be. Uh, they did the same thing then also with their state in life, uh, whether they were married or whether they were single. You're really spiritual if you're one or the other or you're really spiritual if you have a certain vocation or job or whatever it would be. Uh, your circumstance in life and and. And then they got caught up in spiritual gifts. And so some of the gifts that were more quickly seen, more easily seen, uh, like, for example, the gift of tongues or speaking in unlearned languages, that was very visible. And so that got a lot of attention. Or, or speaking in prophecy, the, 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 the men and women who would receive direct revelation from God, uh, inerrant revelation, and declare it to the church. Again, the, you know, the first century church did not have the scriptures in the way we do now. And so there, was, there were these different things going on and by the way, all that discussion on spiritual gifts and how they work today, we've, we've described that in weeks past. And if you'd like to go to that part of the series, there's about four or five weeks we spent on it. Go to the website and you can, you can see that. But, but the point is they were getting caught up in certain gifts and then other gifts were kind of thrown to the side. Like, oh, that's not that big of a deal. And so gifts like mercy or encouragement or helps, uh, gifts like serving, which are critical 
They were less prominent. And so people who had those gifts, they were seen as being less spiritual. And so Paul now is coming to this point, and he's pleading with the church. He's calling the church to say, church in Corinth, by God's grace, you need to labor and work together using all the gifts by God's design, because it's a body. And as he said earlier, you know, a, can't, a hand can't say to a foot, I don't need you. you know, or, or the other grotesque picture he uses, what if it was just a big eyeball? What good would that do, you know? No, we're a body, and, and we need to use the various gifts. And so, and so as we embark upon this next section, we're going to be asking a question. How does God want spiritual gifts to be used in corporate worship? How does he want them used? And he's really dialing that in, and we, and we, we find that uh, in 1 Corinthians 14. So I hope ask you to open to that, turn to that, and we're, we're looking at verses 26, actually, uh, through 40. So 26 through 40. And we're asking this question, how does God want spiritual gifts to be used in corporate worship? So uh, in light of that, let's stand in honor of God's word and go ahead and follow along as I read. He's wrapping this section up on spiritual gifts and he begins in verse 26 by saying, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three and each in turn and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject themselves, just as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in a church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. And, but if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. Therefore, my brethren... Desire earnestly to prophecy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Lord, we ask that you would use this time in your word, that your spirit himself, who wrote this, that he would take these words and transform our hearts, that we as a church family would live out our lives in you together corporately in a way that glorifies you, that each of us would use the gifts you've given us for the purpose of building up the body and that you would be glorified as we worship you together as a family and as we love you and as we love one another so that those who don't yet know you would come to that place of seeing their need for you, that they would know we're your followers by the way we live before you and together. We'd ask that you bring these things to pass in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So again, how does God want spiritual gifts or call us to use our spiritual gifts in corporate worship? And, and, and the first thing we would see, and it's something we've seen many times, is, is if we're going to do that, we must use them, use these gifts to, first of all, build up. 
That's the point. Building up one another. And we see that in verse 26. He says, well, what's the outcome? Of all the things he's described and discussed already. Um, and he's talked about that, how, how they're to desire the greater gifts. He capped off, or began the previous section in that way. The greater gifts being apostleship, prophecy, teaching. Well, he, he says the greater gifts, the gifts that are intelligible as opposed to impressive. Go and, and seek out to, to minister to one another with, with these intelligible gifts. And he's saying it's all for the purpose of building up. And then he, we get a little kind of window into the way uh, the, the assembly there in Corinth worked as they gathered. And so what, what happened? Well, the, the, apparently we had people uh, who would have a psalm, possibly an Old Testament song that they wanted to sing. And they would sing that. And then, and then there would be uh, others who would have uh, a teaching. Others who, the prophets, would receive revelation from God. And then someone would have an, an unlearned language that they would speak. Um, again, as a declaration of, of God's work there. And then there would be an interpretation. Someone who had the gift of interpretation can hear this person with the unlearned language and translate it immediately. But here's the thing. Notice that last portion. Let all things be done for edification. And so we find that there's a place and a way in which corporate worship gathered should be carried out. And we need to be careful not to take this as a, as a mandate. Like, this, this is the order of service for every church. Right here, verse 26. That's what you do. That's not what he's trying to give us. He's giving us the principle of all things being done to build up. And so Paul's point here is that there's a time for a number of people to participate. One person may sing a hymn. Another who has the gift of teaching would instruct the congregation. Some who have the gift of prophecy would bring a revelation. And, and, and yet, we also see that for, for those speaking in unlearned languages, uh, there would be certain conditions present for them and for other gifts as well to be used. And that's why in verse 27, he goes on to say, if anyone does speak in a tongue, it should be by two at the most three. In other words, this, these things aren't just to build up. Um, there's another way in which we need to utilize the gifts. Uh, speaking in unlearned languages should edify, certainly, if certain conditions are present. And that would bring us to the next way God calls us to use spiritual gifts in corporate worship. We must not only use them to build up, but we also need to use them to hone in. And what do we mean by that? Well, by hone in, we mean that there are limits voluntarily out of love placed on the use of gifts. Um, and that's a kind of a counterintuitive idea, but this is what he describes. Look at what he says in verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two, at most three. And one must interpret. But notice verse 20. If there's not an interpreter, this person is to keep silent in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. And, uh, and this is very counterintuitive to us, that we're to embrace the, the limits, or to, we're actually to restrain the use of spiritual gifts. And you're going, why would that be? That aside, I don't know about you, but you know, so let's say I'm standing here, and again, you know, there's a, there's a way in which unlearned languages in the first century church was utilized by God for a very you know, special purpose in terms of showing people God's you know, power in establishing this, this, the church. And if I all of a sudden can speak Vietnamese, all right, and I start speaking in Vietnamese, well, there needs to be interpreter, an interpreter present for it to be used. And I'm going, anybody have a gift of interpretation? Well, according to this, if the answer is no, you know what that means? I gotta be quiet. Folks, if I can speak Vietnamese all of a sudden, you know what I am? I'm excited, okay? 
I've never spoken in Vietnamese before. It'd be amazing. Um, so why would that be the case? And that, and that is a very, and there's all kinds of mysterious questions here that, that we're really not given answers to. Um, when someone's speaking, um, you know, in tongues, do they, do they know what they're saying? I, I think they do. Certainly there's communication happening between the person and God. So he or she certainly would, would have that. And yet, the, but the main principle would be to, to limit things in, to, to not, to restrain the use of that. And, uh, and so the question would be, why? That's an amazing gift. Why would that be the case? And, and I, I think there's, there's some mystery involved in this, but I also think there's, there's something that we need to learn. And that would be this. You won't know what love is until you learn to restrain yourself. The context is love, right? He's just talked about that. And, and certainly we find that, yeah, the use of gifts, the gift aren't, isn't there for its own sake. The gift isn't there merely because there's a gift and it has to be used. As a matter of fact, sometimes the loving thing to do is to not use it or to limit ourselves. I was trying to think of some illustrations. Some of these are maybe not totally the best. I don't know. I, again, for those of you who know me, I have a I play a, a, played a lot of guitar in the past, and I remember uh, even in teaching guitar and in doing things like that, we would, we would utilize a limitation exercise. So when, you, when, you're, when you're playing guitar and you learn a scale, you're going to learn your first position scale. And it's going to be like, here's the neck, and you're going to go across that pattern. You're going to do it like that. The problem is, when you have a young person soloing for the first time, guess what they're going to do? All the solos are going to be in the same part of the neck. And you know what? It gets old. Because a good solo... It's going to go somewhere. A good solo is going to have like a beginning and it's going to peak out, you know? And then, and then it's going to like slightly, slightly kind of resolve. So you're going to, you want to peak out. You want to do this up the neck. So to make a student, and, and, and as I was learning, I would do this too. We would use an exercise called the unitar. What's that mean? You can only use one string to play. Yeah, you got six strings, you're going to use one. And you're going to solo using only one string. And what does that do? That forces you to do this. You're like, uh, and you start thinking differently too. And then my teacher was super mean when I was doing jazz stuff because then we would do jazz and then the key centers are changing too. So now you're like playing on one string and the keys are changing. You're like, ah, you know, and he'd be laughing at me like, uh, gotcha. You know, because he could do it no problem. He was fine. And I'm like, uh, but limiting. There, there, sometimes limit or restraint is something that is an important thing to learn. And I think here what Paul is saying is you're not going to know what love is unless you learn to restrain yourself. Think about all the examples we see of power under control. It is loving. Look at Jesus when Jesus came. Jesus, the omnipotent God, restrained the expression of his deity in so many ways. Why? Out of love. I mean, how many times was he, he was tested by the devil when he was tempted? Or all these things the devil told him to do. He could have done any one of them. He refused to. He didn't. Though he was able, he did not. Out of love. I think we find that love does that. And so in this situation, it's out of love for my brothers and sisters here because the whole point is to build up, not to display my gift. The point is to encourage out of love, I don't have to use that gift all the time. 
we find that one, an element of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. A demonstration yet again that God's at work in our lives. So there was a limit on tongues. There was a way in which it's to be honed in for a specific purpose. Uh, we find the same thing with prophecy, too. We see that in verses 29 through 36. Let two or three prophets speak. So now there's, there's a limit on the number of prophets who are going to speak. Again, a prophet receiving direct revelation from God. He or she would declare that, and the congregation would receive that. It was fully authoritative. And uh, again, they didn't have the scriptures yet, and so they, God's word was being brought directly in that way. And notice what he says. Um, let two or three prophets speak. Let the others pass judgment. Um, what's that all about? Well, as it turns out, we remember from chapter 12, verse 1, Paul called us to discernment, right? He said, be discerning. Not, not everything uh, that's being spoken or declared, you know, is, is of God. Only by the Holy Spirit can someone say, you know, um, that uh, Jesus is Lord, and no one by the Spirit says Jesus is accursed. So there were things being said in the assembly where it's like, was, is this God? Is it not God? And so here there was a discerning need. By the way, the gift of discernment would also be a part of that. Where is this in fact of God or not? And so the prophets would evaluate that. Uh, and and they, would, uh, they would render judgment. And so uh, that's, what, that's what verse 29 is saying. But there's another limitation. Verse 30, if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. So apparently, whoever was speaking was probably standing. And then what would happen is, if another prophet received revelation, there would be some sort of way of saying, hey, I have a revelation. And so then the one speaking out of love, out of a desire to build up the body, out of a desire for a brother or sister to use their gift, there would be a voluntary, okay, I'm saying, speak. There wasn't, it wasn't about, again, me saying my thing. Um, we do that. We do the me thing so easily. And it becomes about me. I, I, uh, this week, I saw an old comedic thing. I think his name is Brian Regan, and he does that whole, you know, the ego factor. And he asks that question, why is that? Why is it that you're in a conversation, and like this thing inside of us is like, are you done speaking yet? Are you done? Because I want to, you almost done? Because I want to give my me, right, at the dinner party, right? You're sitting around talking. And he uses the example of, you know, the guy's like, yeah, I've got a global conglomerate and we got to buy this one and do that. We're going to do business and rah, rah, rah. And of course, he does a great, I can't even do the impression of the guy, but he does that, you know, whole, almost like a monster coming out, you know, rah, rah, me, 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 me. And he's like, just once, just once, I want to be at a party like that where one of the people there is one of the astronauts who walked on the moon. Because then they can just be sitting there and go, you done? You know, yeah, we're going over to Europe. You know, we're driving here. You know, we're going to be traveling. And da, 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 da. Are you done now? Yeah. Okay. I walked on the moon. <laughs> you know, done. <laughs> you know, what else are you to say? You know, you bring up travel. And well, I remember when I was up on the moon, driving in, driving in the sea of tranquility, <laughs> you know, in my lunar rover, and we thought, man, are we going too fast? Like, do you think, you think we've got to be careful up here? And then we realized, wait, huh, there's no one else up here. We're on the moon, you know? 
<laughs> it's just kind of like, but that's it, this ego factor. And what Paul is saying is that meanness, that look at meanness, that uh, I'm above others, that has no place in the church, no place amongst the people of God, and especially no place in the use of our gifts. And so this limitation, this restraint, is a way of demonstrating that humility. Um, so one is speaking, one is silent, voluntarily. And then we have, uh, you know, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. And then verse 32, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Again, the prophets had a, a, a responsibility to evaluate prophecy that was coming. Again, not to discern, hey, they were on today or off today. You know, there were some that would take this and say, yes, sometimes prophecy today, it's not really accurate or it has flaws. So, so these prophets are, are evaluating, you know what, today, today, John, he was, you know, he was a 4-7. Last week, though, he was like a 9. Meh, 4-7, he was okay. They're not doing, that's not what's happening here. I really, truly believe this is a, is this of God or not? And if it's not, we don't receive the, pro- if someone's saying Jesus is accursed, it's not of God. That, that's what's being evaluated here. Um, but again, there's discernment, the gift of discernment being utilized in that. And then he, he emphasizes yet again why. Verse 33, four, because, this is back to God's character, God's not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. That's an important phrase. God is not here for confusion. You have everybody talking, apparently what's happening is people are talking all at the same time. So people are speaking in various unlearned languages, different prophets are standing up going, thus saith the Lord, or this is what God is saying, the Holy Spirit's saying this, and it's all like, and then someone's singing a psalm over here, and, someone, and, and Paul's going, stop. There is to be order. Why? Because we're reflecting God's character. God is not a God of confusion, but peace. And that's all the churches of the saints. Why? Because the church in Corinth was to some extent going, look at how many gifts we've got. Look at the, the impressive gifts we have. Paul's going, no, the intelligible nature of the gifts is what's important to build up. And in light of that, when you gather it, it needs to be orderly. And so he emphasizes that here. Um, so limiting or restraining or honing in the use of gifts is an act of love. Um, there was a, in 1960, there were two, two men that made a bet. It was just for 50 bucks. But what happened was it resulted in actually millions of dollars and men, many people would also feel the impact of this little wager. Uh, the, first, the first guy, his name was Bennett Cerf. He was the founder of Random House. And the second person was named Theo Geisel. But you probably know this one as Dr. Seuss. And uh, Surf had, had, had promised the bet and challenged Dr. Seuss that he could not write an entertaining children's book using only 50 different words. That was the bet. You can use only 50 words. So Dr. Seuss took the bet and he won. And the result was a little book called Green Eggs and Ham. And since its publication, it sold more than 200 million copies. It's the most popular Seuss book, one of the best-selling children's books in history. And you might think, well, that was just a fluke, right? I mean, the talented author's playing a fun game with 50 words and by producing a hit. But, but really, it's very interesting because we learned this important lesson from this. 
what Dr. Seuss discovered was that, even though it was a bet, is that, is that there's a power that comes in setting constraints. Uh, there's, there's a, you know, constraints or limits are not necessarily the enemy. And, and so artists need to have limited tools and, and limit themselves. Athletes will train with limited movements and limited ways to gain skill. Uh, every entrepreneur has a limited amount of resources that he or she can use to build their business. And when you know your constraints, then you can operate within them. And if anything, constraints sometimes can actually lead to greater creativity and greater fruit. And certainly that seems to be the principle here that Paul's bringing forward the gifts. We limit and restrain out of love. Um, the next section is another element where we find the same kind of restraint being used. And that is in verses 34 to 36 with, uh, with women and their use of words in the church. And, and to say that this section is heated and controversial is an understatement, okay? Like, I, you read on this today, and it's almost like flames come out of your screen or off the page. Like, woo! When I say hot potato, I'm not talking kind of hot potato. I'm talking sizzling hot potato. And, and it, there's a lot of things that we learn from this, uh, but... Um, but we need to, first of all, see that this is a great example of how do you deal with an imperative in the New Testament? Imperatives are important. Imperatives are commands. We're, we're to follow those. We're to obey those. But we have to also understand something. Context determines meaning for imperatives too. So there would be some that would say, okay, women keep silent in churches. So when you're driving to church... And you're, maybe you're married and you've got your spouse there and she's sitting there. It's like, well, love, uh, once I cross the driveway here, you're done, you know? So, don't try it, guys. Not advisable, number one. Number two, not what the passage is saying at all. Um, and then others would, would, would utilize it in other ways to say, well, during the worship service itself, you know, women should not say anything. It's not what it's saying either. Uh, so, so I think, again, let's let the context determine, determine the meaning here, okay? So first would be uh, the historical context. Paul, in this section, he is not giving a seminar on gender roles within the church. Instead, he is pastorally concerned with disruptions in the church in first century Corinth. That's what the whole thing's been about so far. There have been, there's been disorder and disruptions in the gathered worship service. Logical context is the next thing we could look at. And, and so in this context, notice everyone's being limited in their speech. Have you seen that? So those with tongues, they're, they're limited unless there's an interpreter. Those who are prophets only speak at certain times. And then if someone else has a revelation, you're done. And it's only two to three. It's not everybody. Um, so there's limits everywhere. And then we look at the grammatical context. We would see that this imperative in verse 34 comes right after Verses 32 and 33, which are describing the prophets evaluating the prophecy of other prophets. That's the immediate context. So in light of those three elements of context, I believe this is referring specifically to the issue of prophecy in the church and it being evaluated. And in that way, at that time, um, women were not to evaluate the prophecy of others. That was, that was what he's saying, I think. Um, and, and let's put ourselves in their position. Why would that be? Because it would be a damaging gospel witness. I mean, if you could 
We've talked before about head coverings and, and how in that context, for a woman to be in church without her head covered was shameful. It was, an, it was modesty at that point, right? So again, you can take the imperative, go up, head coverings. And, you know, and again, some people have that conviction. We respect that. But, but really, we would see the context of their culturally of being modesty. And here and in this situation, Paul is calling for order and a degree of self-control on the part of, specifically, I think it would be wives. Um, and, and, and so the picture would be Maybe a husband is prophesying, because the word there for women can be wife, right? So she's, she's there, and her husband is prophesying. And in a sense, for her to, to challenge, disagree, correct, or whatever, in that context, in that culture, her husband um, would not be something that would be uh, dignified in that culture, in that place. Um, I mean, it, you know, it could, it could be similar. There are times... When, when I'm preaching, my beautiful wife, Jana, she doesn't always see it the same way as I do. Um, pray for me, okay? I'm probably wrong. That's probably true. I don't know. But could you imagine Janet in the middle of this going, standing up right there and just going, dude, you are so wrong. How are you all going to feel in that moment? It's going to be a little awkward, I would say, right? Tension in the room. You know, how do I diffuse that? Whoa. Thank you for sharing, honey. Like, I don't know how you do that. It's awkward. So, I think that's the, the point that Paul is making here, um, is that there is a discussion that would happen outside of the context of the worship service. And um, because, again, it's about edifying, about building up. And so, to interrupt the entire service in that way, and for a wife to be correcting or bringing under judgment the prophecy of a husband um, that's not going to edify or build up. But you'll notice also it, it doesn't mean that those conversations shouldn't happen in other contexts. They do need to, and they do, and they should. So um, all this together, all this idea of honing in or limiting, the worship service is not about one individual edifying themselves. God's called his people to reflect him in all that they do. And since God is a God of peace and order, this needs to be reflected in the gathered church. And uh, everything that's said and done is, is to, to, to build up. And all gifts are to be utilized. But at times, some gifts are to be uh, restrained out of love for others. And because God calls us to, to use our gifts in that way. So we're called to use gifts in order to build up uh, we're called to use gifts to hone in. Thirdly, we're called to use gifts to walk under. And then we find that in verses 37 and 38. Because the, the, the pride and the arrogance in the Corinthian church was well known. And so Paul says, hey, look, if someone thinks they're a prophet or spiritual, recognize the things I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Did Paul know he was writing Scripture or writing the words of God. Yeah, well, here, it would seem he certainly does. I'm writing to you the Lord's commandment. He's declaring apostolic authority. You'll notice he is not subject to the evaluation of the prophets because he's an apostle. Uh, we saw earlier, what are the greater gifts? First apostle, then prophet, then teacher. So he's saying, I'm an apostle. I don't need you to evaluate um, what I'm saying, I'm giving you an, an apostolic command, which is the word of the Lord. And if you don't recognize this, he's saying, you're not recognized. So if you claim to be a prophet, but you're not receiving this as God's word, then you're not a prophet. And uh, 
He's really making clear they're not evaluating him to see whether or not what he's saying is in fact of God. And if they refuse to recognize that he is speaking God's word, they forfeit their own recognition in that very moment. And, and, and that's important. Again, what we, what we do is we bring forward really the apostolic witness. Uh, that's, that's what the gospel is. It's the, the, the apostles eyewitness account of what happened with Jesus when we come to Resurrection Sunday in several weeks. Actually, next week when we begin talking about the resurrection, because that's the next section, we're looking at the apostolic witness. And, and we're bringing that forward to say, uh, this is what God did. These are the credible witnesses. This is God's word. And, um, and so we, we want to be really, really clear about that. Why? Because God uses that to transform, change lives, bring light, bring truth. Um, so God calls us to use our gifts not only to build up, to hone in, to walk under, but lastly, to, to discern through. And that's verses 39 and 40. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Don't forbid speaking in tongues, but all things must be done properly in an orderly manner. Again, verse 39 is hearkening back to 14.1, where he said, desire, the greater, uh, desire earnestly the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And then um, in uh, chapter, uh, the previous chapter, uh, 12, he talks about those, those greater gifts being apostleship, prophecy, and teaching. Um, as he's using the word prophecy, he's referring to that grouping of gifts, I believe. And so he's saying, look, the, make sure it's intelligible speech over impressive speech. Desire that. Bring that forward. Because what's intelligible, God uses to transform lives. To call us to know him. To call us to repentance. And, uh, and then do not forbid speaking in tongues. Don't, don't, I love how he's saying here, don't be so reactive that you quell the use of gifts um, just because they're abused. He gives guidelines for their use and he says use them in that way. And so, um, you know, that, that's important. And, and uh, again, we've discussed the nature of the gifts and, and their use and everything else previously, so I won't go too much further into that. But um, the whole point is in verse 40, all things must be done properly in an orderly manner. And so there's an eagerness for gifts. There's a desire to speak God's word to one another. There's a way in which we want to serve and we want to utilize those. And the question for all of us is, are you utilizing the gifts God's given you? What, what has to happen for that to happen? First, recognize that if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, God's given you at least one spiritual gift, probably more than one. Secondly, when you come to that place, realize, okay, I need to use it. How do you do that? You explore. Start serving. I mean, if you're someone who just comes to Clayton Valley Church and you're here and we're glad you're here, that's good, but you're not engaging, you're not active, the call here to you is don't sit on the sidelines because frankly, there are no sidelines. If you're on a football field, you think you're on the sidelines and you're at the first hash mark, guess what's going to happen? You're getting mowed down. There are no stands. You're not a spectator. Uh, the, the only audience present here right now is the Lord. We're all here before him. We're all here to serve him. So find out what that gift, experiment, explore, however you want to put it, start engaging, and then see what happens. As you serve, others are going to either encourage you, they'll understand that, or, or maybe it's like, you know what? That was, eh, you might try, you know. How did that go? We need one another to feed back with one another, to grow and to learn. Um, 
and, and, and realizing that God, God is at work to build up through us in this way, and we, and we need everybody. Because frankly, you have a gift or a blend of gifts that no one else has. And if you don't accomplish the thing God's gifted you to do, there's going to be a lack of the body. It would be like, you know, I'm a hand, but I'm not that important, so I'm just going to stop working. Well, the rest of the body suffers when any given part doesn't work. Uh, I heard recently that they're finding even the appendix. You know how people think, oh, the appendix, yeah. It's, a, it's an evolutionary leftover. Get rid of it. Who cares? Now, you know what they're finding out? The appendix is, in fact, maybe. It might have to do with some of uh, immunity function or some, something along those lines. So, if yours is out, don't worry. But I'm just saying, you know, everything matters. Wait, what I learned today? Oh, no. No, don't. I'm, I'm not a doctor. Well, I'm not that kind of doctor. So, don't. Don't. Yeah. No. But the point is, everyone is needed. Um. So there was, a, there was a flight many years ago going from New York to Orlando. Um, there's a person, she wanted to see Disney World with her family. Her name was Teresa. And she's about seven months pregnant. And about 30 minutes into the flight, Teresa doubles over and she began bleeding. And the flight attendant announced that they needed a doctor. And so a Long Island internist volunteered, came up. And Teresa soon gave birth to a boy. But the baby was in trouble. The umbilical cord was wrapped tightly around his neck and he wasn't breathing and his face was blue and there was a ton of concern. So two paramedics rushed forward to help and, and, and one specialized actually in infant respiratory procedures. And so he asked if anyone had a straw because he wanted to use it to, to, to uh, suck fluid from the baby's lungs. And the plane didn't stock straws. But the flight attendant remembered... She had a straw from a juice box she brought on the plane. So she pulls the straw. The paramedic inserts the straw into the baby's lungs. And then the internist administered CPR. And, and then the internist asked for something he could use to tie off the umbilical cord. So a passenger offered a shoelace. Four minutes of terror passed. And the baby whimpered. And soon the crew was able to joyfully announce it was a boy. And everybody on board clapped and cheered parents gave the little boy the name Matthew because Matthew means God sent. And the people on board the plane were just, they were all God sends in that moment. And it's amazing because in that moment, God really did work through various people to give what they had and what they could to meet a pressing situation, a dire situation. Could you imagine if someone there had the straw and was like, wow, I've got a straw and just got caught up in the straw instead of like handing it over and using it? Or if someone else said, well, I've got as a shoelace, I can't, right? No, it took everybody and it was urgent and everybody brought forward what they had. There is an urgency to this passage. We must bring forward what we have, whatever it would be from God to use it for God. That God would be glorified that this church, our church family would be edified, built up and that God would do mighty things and continue to do mighty things amongst us. So let's seek him in that way. Let's be a part of using the gifts he's given us for the building up of the body. Let's pray.
Lord, we, we look to you and ask that you would help us to take hold of these truths about the gifts that you've given. And Lord, we ask that we would do all things in order to build up one another. Lord, we pray that we would remember that the gifts are from you, that you distribute them as you will, but you do that for a reason. They're also for you. And we ask that the common good would be cared for by all of us as we one another, that we would desire to speak your words to one another, that we would desire to come alongside one another to encourage, that we would help one another, that we would care for one another, and that you would be glorified as we live as the gospel made visible in this place for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.